Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Father, we pray that we would honor you with our minds. Lord, that we would honor you with our obedience. That we would recognize, Lord, that you discipline those whom you love. We thank you that you're attentive to us. Send your Holy Spirit to attend to us right now. Convict our hearts. Convict our minds. May our lives take on the shape of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 I want to start off this morning by telling you guys a story about when I was a little kid. All right? I was about seven or eight years old, and uh, my sister and I were arguing in our garage. And uh, she starts taunting me, as sisters will. And uh, she, she's really annoying me, and she won't be quiet. And out of the corner of my eye, I see this aluminum bat that my mom used for softball. <laughs> and I think, well, that, there's a bright idea. <laughs> so I grab the bat, and I start telling her, you better be quiet. And she just keeps taunting me, and she goes, you won't do that. Mom and Dad will kill you. And I said, you think I won't? And, uh, and, and so I, I raised the bat in the air. And she goes, you won't do that. Mom and Dad will kill you. I said, you think I won't? And I, and I hovered it over her head like this, about a foot. So we, this continued for a little bit. You won't do that. Do you think I won't? You won't do that. You think I won't? And then finally, I let the bat sort of drop. Now, I didn't necessarily swing and hit her with it. But she did definitely get a bonk on the head with an aluminum bat. And you would have thought that I swung and hit her as hard as I could the way that she cried. I mean, she let my parents know about it. They were all the way in the house. They could hear her from where she was at. And honestly, I think she was more shocked and betrayed than genuinely injured. But I mean, you wouldn't have thought about that the way that she was crying. And when my parents found out what happened, it didn't matter whether it was a swing or a little bonk to them. All they knew was that I hit my sister in the head with an aluminum bat. And that, my friends, was one of the worst spankings that I ever received. Now, to be clear, I absolutely deserved it. Hitting someone with a, with a bat is very serious. I mean, honestly, honestly, to be serious for a minute. I could have caused her brain damage if I would have just been a little bit more foolish, a little bit more clumsy. And could you imagine the negligence, the lack of love that, it would have, that, that my parents would have shown if they didn't treat this as a serious occasion for discipline? My parents were right to come down strong because they needed to instill this lesson in me very deeply that such foolish behavior is not only wrong, it's out of the question. This is something I simply had to learn as a young boy. And the lesson sunk in too. I was just a little kid, but I felt really bad about what I did. And never again did I ever lift a finger to my sister's or even th so much as threaten to use a weapon on them. So this story doesn't cast me in the greatest light. 
But I began with it because I think it has a lot to teach us about family dynamics, the way that siblings fight. I mean, no one had to teach us that, right? It just sort of comes naturally. It also speaks of the sense of protection that parents could give. She knew there was only so far I was going to go because I feared the rod. The sense of betrayal that can happen between two siblings when things go too far and the importance of timely discipline. We've been preaching through the book of Proverbs topic by topic, and today we come to this theme of family relationships. So you can take out your scripture insert. And there are three main things that I want us to see in these scriptures. Number one, the dignity and glory of the family. Number two, the call on children to respect their parents. And number three, the call on parents to exercise loving discipline. But before we make these positive points about family and talk about the glories and trials of normal family life, I think it's important to begin by giving a warning about the possible idolatry of the family. I don't know if you've ever thought about the possibility that family can become an idol. But if you haven't, you should. Idolatrous behavior is not simply a matter of worshiping that which is evil. Right? Idolatry occurs, that's true enough, but idolatry also occurs and, and can be more subtle than that. Idolatry happens when we make good things into ultimate things. For example, we can do this with money. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Financial prosperity can be a gift from God. But Jesus is clear that it also can become a rival God. That's why he says no one can serve both God and mammon. Or we can make an idol out of the opinions of others. Of course, it's a good thing to have the respect of your friends or your neighbors or your community. But we must be careful because it's not the ultimate thing. In Galatians 1 verse 10, Paul goes so far as to say, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. When the rubber meets the road, when something hard needs to be said by this apostle, he realizes if he's going to hesitate to say that because he's trying to people please, then he's made an idol out of the very people he's trying to preach to. So idolatry creeps in when we make a good thing, like financial prosperity or the opinion of others, into an ultimate thing. And we can do this with family, too. I think it's very important for the church, especially evangelical Christians, to hear the scriptures on this because evangelicals have often made an idol out of family. We've often acted as if family obligations have an ultimacy that surpasses even our obligation to worship and serve the Lord. We've often neglected the building of friendships or even stigmatized singleness which both Jesus and the Apostle Paul honor as if marriage was a prerequisite to full citizenship in the church. We've often justified greed under the banner of providing for our family. In our gospel reading today, we see Jesus, he's trying to, Jesus' family, they're trying to discourage him from following his calling. <laughs> They even thought he is out of his mind. Turn with me there, if you would, to Mark chapter 3 in your scriptures. Mark 
Jesus is teaching a group of people, and his family tries to interrupt the gathering. And Jesus, out of obedience to God, ignores them. Now, could you guys imagine that? The sinless Son of God is ignoring his mom. That sounds so scandalous. Even the crowds think, think so. They say to him in Mark chapter 3, verse 32, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Right? They're saying, why are you ignoring them, Jesus? You know they're standing out there. But Jesus answers, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And in saying this, Jesus affirmed that the church is a kind of alternate, alternative family. One that in a very real sense is primary, not least because it's an eternal family. The Apostle Paul referred to the church as the household of God. And the earliest Christians referred to each other as brothers and sisters. This should be a great encouragement to those of us who are single, or for orphans, or for people who for one reason or another feel like they have no family. Because the church was committed to being a family from the beginning. In fact, you know this tradition, it's still, we still, uh, it still goes on today, but it doesn't mean necessarily the same thing. When somebody gets baptized, they have a godparent. You've heard of that, right? It's, it's oftentimes the person who sponsors them in their baptism. They take part in instructing them in their baptism. And so in the early church, this sponsor would disciple the person who's being baptized. They would ensure that they've actually repented from their old life. And they would assert that to the church. They would say, I, I assure you, this person has repented. But they were also, it became this tradition, they would be called their godparents. Why? Because it was so common when somebody would get baptized and begin following Jesus that they would be thrown out of their house. That these, that their baptism sponsors became their new parents. They would have to be welcomed into that home. People would be thrown out of the synagogue or in a pagan context. They would be kicked out of their house. So the church had to be like a family. A few weeks ago, I, I preached on the topic of friendship. And Proverbs 18.24 says, There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And there again, we see this idea that non-blood relations can become family. We mentioned that friends are like the family we choose for ourselves. Likewise, Proverbs 17.2 in your handout affirms that someone can become a part of the family without being blood. It says, A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. So these servants, they can gain a status and standing that goes beyond birthrights. It says, And will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. In other words, in biblical times, a servant can become so precious to a family that they are essentially adopted as children. They become inheritors among the brothers of more value than even a son who acts shamefully. So throughout the scriptures, there are various kinds of non-traditional, non-biological forms of family, such as trusted servants, close friends, or even the household of God, which is the church. But having acknowledged all this, 
I want to spend the rest of our time today attending to what Proverbs has to teach us about traditional family dynamics. Because as much as we because as much as we hear criticisms of the family in the 21st century, we, we need to remember that it was God who created this social arrangement. It was God who created the first marriage, the first exclusive one flesh union between a man and a woman, and called them to be fruitful and multiply, to have children. And since that day, families have formed the basic building block of any society. Strong families make for strong neighborhoods. Strong neighborhoods make for strong cities, which make for strong nations. Therefore, it's almost difficult to exaggerate the importance of the family and the plan of God from beginning to end. Renew the family unit, and you renew the earth. And that's my first point from Proverbs, that God has ordained the family unit. He has adorned the family unit with dignity and glory. John, could you give me a drink? Thank you. Proverbs 17.6 says this, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. I love this sort of intergenerational picture we get here. And consider the words that are used. Crown and glory. Clearly these family relationships represent the richest of blessings. And God is personally, even emotionally, invested in their protection. Many of us may have heard the famous verse from Malachi 2.16 where God says, I hate divorce. But the covenant between husband and wife is not the only relationship that God is passionate about preserving. Proverbs 6.16 6, and following talks about something else the Lord hates. It says, The Lord hates one who sows discord among brothers. So, someone who's intentionally trying to come between and break up the bonds between siblings. That's not a light thing, guys. Likewise, Proverbs 20.20 20 speaks of the relationship between children and parents and gives this stern warning to kids. It says, If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. That sounds pretty serious to me. So maybe a fair summary of these verses would be to say this. If you want to be on God's bad side, which is not very wise, but if you want to be on God's bad side, one of the quickest ways to do this is to come against natural family bonds. Christopher West, um, who teaches on the theology of the body, has pointed out that it's not an accident that Ephesians 6 comes after Ephesians 5. And he's not just trying to be cutesy with that phrase, because of course that's not an accident. But what he's trying to say is that Ephesians 6, which talks about spiritual warfare against the satanic powers coming against you and the need to protect yourself, that comes immediately after Paul had just spent a whole chapter talking about the family. So that's point number one. God has ordained the family unit with dignity and glory. These are sacred battlegrounds, and God will protect the family against those who come against it. 
from within and from without. All right, point number two. Proverbs consistently emphasizes the call on children to respect their parents. For example, Proverbs 23, 22 says, Listen to your father who gave you life. There's a unique respect for those who give us life, those who bring us into the world. It says, and do not despise your mother when she is old, when she's easy to ignore, and when she doesn't have the authority over you that she had when you were just little and helpless, right? Now it's time for you to help her. Don't despise her. Proverbs assumes that children should care also about pleasing and delighting their parents. It's not an ultimate thing. It shouldn't be an idol, but it's important. Proverbs 23, 24 says, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. And verse 25 says, Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. So it's a good thing for parents to take pride in their children, especially in their righteous and wise character. Now, of course, God didn't give children to parents to be their trophies or to, so that the parents could live out all their dreams vicariously through their children. Right? Parental pride can be an idol, just like parent-pleasing can be an idol for children. But if these excesses are checked, it's actually a good thing for parents to delight in the accomplishment of their children. Right, John and Sarah, you're going to go to um, Miriam's uh, gymnastics meet shortly after service today. It's a good thing for them to cheer loudly and to delight in Miriam's accomplishments at that gymnastics meet. And it's actually a good thing for a daughter to want to please her father. Amen? Hallelujah. <laughs> At two daughters. <laughs> On the other hand, according to Proverbs, it's an exceedingly unwise and almost blasphemous, almost blasphemous thing for children to disrespect their parents. Proverbs 30.17 reads more like a curse than a proverb. Look, look at me. Look at that verse with me. It says, The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Yikes. Showing proper respect for parents is near to the heart of God. In the Mosaic Law, cursing your parents was a capital offense. It was on par, in terms of seriousness, with cursing God. Honor your father and your mother makes the top ten list to Israel. And this command is repeated to the children of the New Covenant Church. Ephesians 6 points out that this is the first commandment with a promise. Why should we honor our father and mother? He gives a practical reason. Because if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. <laughs> that it may go well with you. And that you may live long in the land. Now, this is a difficult command for anyone to follow, and I just want to say it's even more difficult to sort out if you come from a broken family or from an abusive family. I received a text the other day from a former InterVarsity student. I used to be a campus minister for a number of years at FSU, and um, 
the student had recently lost her grandfather. And for this young lady, her sense of loss was complicated by the fact that her grandfather had always been abusive to her and to her family. But the reason why she texted was to share about her last interaction with him and how it was so full of grace. She actually shared Christ with him. And he told her that he had done too many bad things to be forgiven. And he said that to her knowing that she knew very well what some of those things were. And she said she answered him that no one is too bad for the grace of God. Now I got to tell you, I rejoiced in receiving that text not because I think that God will neglect the cause of justice when he's judging this man. God knows his heart. And not because I think that maybe this man shouldn't have gone to prison. For all I know, he should have. But I rejoiced because the mercy that she showed him was cross-shaped and nothing short of miraculous. Now, I'm not saying the call to respect your parents is the same in every circumstance. Some people, no doubt, surrender their rightful place as mother and father. But I can tell you that it is a mark of Christian maturity to show as much honor and respect and mercy for your earthly parents as you can without being dishonest or disingenuous. There's actually a place for talking and praying through honest wounds from our childhood. We're actually going to make space for that at the Equip to Heal concert, uh, uh, conference in a few weeks. And there's certainly a place for exposing real evil and abuse. Absolutely, 100%. Absolutely. If you're a victim of trauma or abuse, Lord, have mercy on you. And I pray that he'll give you the strength in the proper time to bring that forward to someone that you can trust. But aside from these kinds of severe circumstances, which are sadly common, I think the proverb would actually challenge us, challenge believing children more generally, to be on guard against an over-eagerness to criticize our parents. Such a critical spirit shows a lack of mercy and a lack of humility toward the future mistakes that we will make. And far from criticizing, we're called to take every opportunity to honor our father and our mother. All right, now we come to point three, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this point. And that is the consistent call on parents to exercise loving discipline in the lives of their children. Proverbs has much to say in this area. And it's a good thing that it does, because this is a precarious Thing for a preacher to talk about. <laughs> right? This is, this is sacred ground where angels, angels fear to tread. The topic of disciplining your children is an extremely personal is, issue. And this could very easily turn into one of those sermons of congregation shrinking proportions. <laughs> <laughs> but I take the risk with boldness, not because of the wise words that I have to speak but because of the wise words that God has already spoken in the scriptures. 
reason why I'm going to linger here a little bit longer is because Proverbs provides more than just values in this area, like the biblical value for family or the value of respecting one's parents. Proverbs actually gets into the details about disciplining our children. It gives us practical help. Now, if you don't have kids, I want to encourage you to listen up anyway for a few reasons. Because one, you probably will someday. Most people are called to marry eventually. Not all, but most. Number two, you're somebody's kid. And number three, meditating on God's call on parents, meditating on parental discipline can help us understand how God the Father relates to us. For example, Proverbs 3, 10, and 11 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as the father, the son he delights in. The Lord disciplines those he loves. In other words, the pattern set forth for parental discipline is Proverbs, in Proverbs is based on the father's loving discipline of his children, of his people. And this verse makes it clear that the central motivation behind all discipline is love. It's love that's attentive a love that delights in, in forming Christ-like virtue. I honestly think if you want good parenting advice, if you want a command that will help you to be a good parent, the most important is the one that we repeat at the beginning of every service. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Think to yourself, how would I want to be treated if I were in the place of my child? Right? Not, not according to their understanding, you know, in the moment, because no child wants to clean their room. But how would I want to be formed if I, were, if I was in their shoes? You could get a lot of mileage off of the two greatest commandments. Amen? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, says Hebrews 12, 11. But the reason we should not despise it, not resent it, is because it's truly an act of love. We need to understand that. Otherwise, we'll think that a sermon about discipline is a sermon about learning to be a hard, you know what. <laughs> and that's not the case. Discipline is not ultimately about anger. And it's not ultimately about control, making our kids do what we want them to do. It's about loving them enough to see Christ formed in them. It's about spiritual formation, not deformation. Far too often, our, our parenting choices are simply based on what our parents did or didn't do, rather than being rooted in the Word of God. But Proverbs gives us two practical tips on parenting, and they both start with the letter R. The first is the rod, and the second is reproof. Now, the rod refers to corporal punishment, which Proverbs clearly thinks is an important tool. And reproof refers to a kind of moral exhortation which calls a kid out of their bullcrap <laughs> and sets out a godly vision for their lives. Now, I know that one of these methods seems a bit more blue-collar and the other a bit more white-collar, but it's important to say from a biblical perspective, neither of these methods are to be used for the purpose of venting our anger or justifying abuse. And Proverbs doesn't necessarily prescribe them in the same measure. I can say from experience and from careful observation that with one of my children, 
um, corporal punishment was more effective than with another. With one of my children, you try to give too much of an explanation, too much reproof, and nothing would sink in. But somehow a spanking communicated something to them. It was helpful for them. Another one of my, chil my children, they're a little bit more emotionally sensitive. And we kind of learned early on, like, actually just saying a word of reproof, just saying a word of correction, and everything just sort of sorts itself out, right? So it's not just like, oh, we have these two tools and we have to use them because the Bible says so, and we have to use them in equal measure. That's not what's going on here. I mean, I can honestly say that I got much more spankings than my, than my sisters growing up because I did a lot of stupid things when I was a kid, and it was an important way to communicate to me as a young boy. So the goal, again, is spiritual and personal formation. Not deformation. We use these things as tools, not as commands. Proverbs 22.15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. There are a couple of important things to note here. The first is that children are born with an inherited sin nature. Does that surprise anyone? Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. You don't have to teach them evil. You don't have to teach them selfishness or foolishness. They know these things automatically. And the second point is that the rod of discipline has a role in driving these things far from them. A principled approach to spanking or a wrapping on the hand is an essential tool for raising your children. This view is really, it flies in the face of educational theories that assume the essential goodness of people. Assume the essential goodness of your child. Just bring out the natural goodness that's already there. Now, of course, they're created in the image of God, but we're dealing with fallen creatures, and we need to treat them as such. Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14 say, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Now, when this verse says, if you strike him with a rod, he will not die, it's not saying, it's not going to kill him. <laughs> Although that's probably true. <laughs> There's a synonymous parallelism going here. What he's saying is, the rod will save your child from death. The rod will save their soul from Sheol. One Proverbs scholar summarizes the point in this way. He says, He who is indulgent toward a child when he ought to be strict acts as if he really wished his ruin. Mm -hmm. The neglect to show proper discipline at the time when it's needed can lead your child to ruin. This is what my parents were trying to instill in me when they disciplined me firmly for hitting my sister with a bat. Hitting, especially hitting a girl, should be off limits for a boy. Zero tolerance. I needed to learn that. And it seems like counterintuitive that corporal punishment would instill that message, but it works. <laughs> the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So why are we as Christians often so afraid so skittish about this method of discipline. Well, I think one of the reasons we hesitate to use the rod of discipline is because we feel guilty. 
And this could come in many different shades. We feel guilty about a broken marriage. We feel guilty about putting our kids in childcare. We feel guilty about the last time that we disciplined them and we went too far. And I can tell you that there have been times where I've apologized to my children because I don't want to discipline them in anger. And I've said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, Dad, Daddy was, got angry during that, and that really wasn't the right way to discipline you, but here's what I wanted you to learn. And it's important for parents to, to confess to their children, to ask their children uh, for forgiveness, because it shows that I have a Father. I have a God that I am accountable to, right? This isn't just whatever I want, right? It, it can communicate that. But if this is you, if you're here today and you are feeling reticent about disciplining your children because of guilt, I believe I have a word from the Lord for you. Out of Proverbs here. If you're feeling guilty, don't take it out on your children by failing to discipline them. Don't take it out on your children by failing to discipline them. God's purposes are greater than our brittle consciences. God's heart is purer than our bleeding heart. And God's word said he disciplines those he loves. God is not two-dimensional. God is a loving father, not an enabling, spoiling grandfather. And that brings me to the second method of discipline in Proverbs, reproof. Reproof is probably a bit more popular among Christians today because we view it as a more moderate method, but this is actually only partially true. And I want to give a warning on this side because getting our intentions straight and banishing anger is just as important with reproof as it is with the rod. A verbal assault that doesn't have love and formation as its aim can spiritually deform a child just as easy as physical abuse. So we have to always keep the goal in mind. Proverbs 22.6 famously says, Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now we said in the introduction to this series that a proverb is not a command. It works differently than that. And a proverb is not a promise. Like something that is true no matter what. Like God will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise. You can take that to the bank. And I think... Actually, there's been a lot of pain caused by parents taking Proverbs 22.6 as a promise. This is a general word of wisdom that generally holds to be true. But it's not a promise. You know why? Because Proverbs even assumes your children have free will. That's why it speaks to them. It says they can go this way or that. But it's saying generally speaking... If you train up a child in the way that they should go, even when they're old, that virtue will hang with them, right? That virtue will stick with them. So we're training them. We can't abdicate our disciplinary role out of guilt. It's not fruitful to dwell in the past when we have today to focus on. Today. Our children need this kind of loving attentiveness. Amen? Amen. Our bishop's wife, Marsha, I share her story just because I've heard her share this in many settings, but it's her story. She tells the story of um, uh, one time when she said she lost her cool and she kind of reamed her child out. She doesn't specify but, uh, who that child is, but she reamed the child out. <laughs> There's two of them sitting here. 
And uh, she said she felt so crushed afterwards because she realized she had lost her cool and she had gone too far. And she just felt so crushed and she felt so discouraged and she was just sitting in that place of being crushed. And I don't know, I'm, I'm an amateur, I don't know what to do as a parent. And she said she felt like the Lord said to her, well, who do you think you are? Do you think you're going to be the first mother ever that doesn't traumatize her children? <laughs> Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. <laughs> we bring the Lord our heart. We bring the Lord our failures. This is not a, a sermon for you know, stirring up guilt or or regret about the past. Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. He makes his mercy new every morning. Have you made mistakes as a parent? Welcome to the freaking club. <laughs> but take these two tools in hand from God's word, the rod and reproof, and use them with loving intent, intent for your children. Train up your child in the way that they should go. And his word says, in general, even when they are old, they will not depart from it. Let me summarize and begin to draw to a close. We began with a warning about the possibility of making family into an idol. We said that idolatry is not necessarily a matter of worshiping evil things. It can also happen when we make good things into an ultimate thing. We learned these three lessons from Proverbs about the dignity and glory of the family. No matter how much it's criticized in the 21st century, the family unit, and certainly it in part has been criticized because the church has failed to live out its call. But God still is committed to the family. He still defends the family. He still cares about the family. It was his idea, his invention. Number two, the call on children to respect their parents, as we said in the children's sermon. We're called to obey right away, all the way, and with a good attitude. Number three, the call on parents to exercise loving discipline. Don't be afraid, guys. Don't be afraid. Move forward in love. Have the kind of accountability you need in your life from friends, from the church. You think If you think you're messed up, if you think you're too messed up to be a parent... Come, come to the church, come to your brothers and sisters. Let them either encourage you or, or help you in the ways that you need to be helped. Amen? Amen. I want to say a, a word of, uh, I want to say a word of prayer over you, a word of empowerment, and I'd like to ask the person who's leading the prayers of the people to get ready for that part. Father in heaven. We thank you for your loving attentiveness to us. That when we go astray, that when our hearts wander from you, that when we hurt the world, others, ourself, you're there with discipline. We pray that you would teach us to trust you with the discipline you exercise in our life. And we pray, Lord, for the parents here, for the future parents. Lord, that you would teach us to parent in a way that's in keeping with the shape that you show us. That's in keeping with the shape of your discipline over us, Lord. Let our intent always be love. 
Let our goal be formation. Lord, make us quick to repent, quick to re-examine. Lord, would you take the two greatest commandments and would they be like mighty tools in the hands of all the parents here to love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love their children as their self. And Father, I also want to pray your healing for anybody who hears this and it's just heavy, it's, it's a hurtful topic to even bring up, maybe because of past abuse or because of um, grave mistakes, things that we wish we could take back. Lord, we thank you that you nail all these things and worse to the tree. Lord, we thank you that as your word says that Christ became a curse for us. We feel like we've cursed our parents. Lord, we thank you that you've taken the curses upon your own shoulders. Lord, we needed it. Lord, we needed forgiveness of sin. We needed the newness of life that you offer us in Christ. So may our lives be cross-shaped. And may we not be lacking in boldness and in love and in attentive formation of the children in this church and in our families. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.